This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. For the final episode of our three-part series on democracy and technology, I'm bringing you a conversation with Professor Shiman Keitner on a critical and urgent topic, cyber interference in democratic elections. Professor Shimen Keitner is the Alfred and Hannah Frum Professor of International Law at UC Hastings, where she teaches courses on international law, on democracy, technology, and security, and on legal approaches to evidence, among many other topics. She is a leading authority on international law and civil litigation, and she served as the 27th Counselor on International Law in the U.S. Department of State. She holds a bachelor's degree in history and literature with high honors from Harvard, a JD from Yale, where she was the Paul and Daisy Service Fellow, and a doctorate in international relations from Oxford, where she was a Rhodes Scholar. She has authored two books and dozens of articles, essays, and book chapters on questions surrounding the relationship among law, communities, and borders, including issues of jurisdiction, extraterritoriality, foreign sovereign and foreign official immunity, and the historical understandings underpinning current practice in these areas. Professor Keitner has served on the Executive Council of the American Society of International Law and is co-chair of the ASIL International Law in Domestic Courts Interest Group. She is a member of the American Law Institute and an advisor on the ALI's fourth restatement of the foreign relations law of the United States. She is also a founding co-chair of the International Law Association Study Group on Individual Responsibility in International Law and a member of the State Department's Advisory Committee on International Law. Hi, Shimen. Good to see you, Deb. Good to see you, too. Good to hear you for the audio listeners who can't see what we can see, which is that we actually get to have a face-to-face dialogue via video. So, Shimen, let's jump right into it. This conversation is part of a three-episode series on democracy and technology. And today we're focusing on the impact of cyber interference in democratic processes, something I think quite relevant to many of us listening today, not only in the United States, but around the world. And in particular, we're interested in right now talking about the challenges that international law has in either enforcing or structuring international consensus about what or what is not a crime of election interference. Can you give us a definition or a history of cyber interference in democratic processes? Well, as you said, this is an extremely relevant topic and uh, one that a lot of thought is going into uh, and one that I hope your listeners will contribute to the conversation about because uh, there's there's so much to learn and, and so much to think about. So I think cyber and you know in particular attempts to interfere with democratic processes through cyber means, which again, you know, may sound very sci-fi, but literally just means, you know, through connected computers. Uh, is, of course, a relatively new phenomenon because computers, historically speaking, are a relatively new phenomenon. But the idea of interfering with, and I notice you use the term democratic processes, which is sort of a, a broad term that could encompass presumably social and society and political debates, right? So the, the discourse that different communities are having about the kinds of political choices and political future they want to have uh, can be actual elections at you know local, state, federal levels. So the actual, again, process of tallying and processing votes. And uh, it can be through you know, other sorts of attempts to influence either economically or uh, through you know, attacks on infrastructure, things like that, the, the social conditions in which people live. So there, there are a whole range of dimensions in which computers and information transmitted across computers can be used to do the kinds of things that people have been doing for centuries, which is trying to exert influence over the decision-making processes of of any given community. And I think what has drawn the attention of of international lawyers uh, are two things. One, uh, in the sort of human rights world, there's an understanding that, of course, a government has to be responsive to its population. So there are individual rights issues that I'm sure you've talked about in other episodes and that are very much implicated by the rise of, of new technologies and particularly communications technologies. 
Uh, and then, uh, so there's the question of, of, you know, the domestic conversation and, and sort of space in which that conversation takes place. But then, of course, countries also deploy various cyber technologies to try to influence each other's processes, decision-making processes. And there are attempts to figure out, you know, where to draw the lines in terms of what is essentially foreign policy and what actually crosses a line that would violate international legal obligations and maybe even more important than the the sort of black letter law, as we call it, would be, you know, what will make our international system ultimately, you know, less stable if we allow it to continue. What does cyber interference look like? I mean, I think many of us are probably in the back of our minds, if not in the front of our minds, thinking uh, about the 2016 election and Russian interference. We'll get to that. But can you give us a case of what cyber interference might look like or a specific moment of uh, interference into democratic uh, processes that might include or encompass one or more of the strategies that you just talked about? Sure. And, you know, even the word interference can be a little bit loaded, right? Because there's not a, a crime of interference per say, but we do talk in international law about something called the non-intervention principle. And there's a lot of really interesting, again, thinking and writing about uh, what kinds of attempts to exert pressure you know, cross the line from legitimate attempts at persuasion to actually prohibited interventions. So the interference label, I like it, I guess, because it, it doesn't have a particular legal valence. But if the idea is, you know, try, trying to change the course or, or modify the course of a decision that might otherwise come out another way, I think you can think of overt and then covert methods, right? Overt methods would be uh, putting out statements saying, you know, here's what we think uh, your society uh, should be considering. So you might even think about democracy promotion, right, as something that seeks to influence and shape what other societies decide to do in terms of their own political structures. The covert is what worries me more. And so examples absolutely do jump to mind with the 2016 election. Uh, for example, there was an indictment against the Internet Research Agency, which is a, a Russian uh, troll factory, essentially. And if you can pull that in indictment off the Internet and read it online, uh, and it will detail in really um, sort of painstaking detail attempts to create counts on social media that purported to be the accounts of American citizens posting various messages, political messages, both on, on the left and the right, that were then transmitted, you know, went viral through social media to try and generate sentiment, strong sentiment around particular hot button issues. There were attempts, for example, to organize rallies and then send counter protesters to the same location to try to encourage conflagration in the streets. There were attempts as well to tell people, for example, that their voting location had changed or that voting was actually happening on a different day. So these are a variety of election-related methods where both sort of covert methods in terms of creating fake personas online, but then also propagating what we call disinformation to actually interfere in people's abilities to make decisions based on you know, accurate, reliable information. I wanted to pick up on something you said a bit earlier, which is the really kind of befuddlement around whether or not cyber interference falls under international law or under domestic law. And I guess I, I'm interested in why cyber interference in democratic processes has become such a fraught issue that straddles both domestic law and international law. Why is it such a problem for defining which of these two ought to be the rubric by which cyber interference is held accountable? And why cyber interference might be such a problem for international law to accommodate or to uh, adjudicate. Absolutely. Well, the, the good news is they're not mutually exclusive. So something can, can be governed absolutely both by domestic and international law. And again, it may be useful for listeners to just take the cyber out of it and think about, you know, regular old, whether it's espionage or, again, attempts to persuade people to, to adopt a particular course of, say, a foreign policy course that, that would be favorable, perhaps, to a particular domestic interest group or, uh, or another country. So the idea is, and Deb, I think democratic theory is really at the heart of this, the idea is, broadly speaking, we want groups of individuals to be able to determine their own political destinies, right? And 
So the way the world is right now, and it's not necessarily the way the world always has been or always will be, but we're divided up into countries. And the general idea is that the the relevant group for making these kinds of day-to-day decisions about how resources are going to be allocated and decisions are going to be made is, is primarily made at the domestic level. And obviously, you know, we're having this conversation here in the United States, which is a federal system. So there's another layer of certain kinds of decisions are made at the state level and others are made at the federal level. But the, the basic idea is that, you know, the domestic population, the national population is entitled to to make its own decisions. And you know, during the course of the 20th century, the idea gained traction that the most legitimate way for societies to make those decisions was through some sort of democratic model, right, of, of decision making. And so right from the start, the question has arisen, well, to what extent should we allow other countries to try and influence the results of those decisions? And so we have things like the Foreign Agent Registration Act, FARA, right, which some of your listeners might be familiar with. We have campaign finance rules about uh, donations from foreigners. And again, you know, there's this notion, and we can certainly interrogate it, but this notion that you know, we want people who, who live in this country to be making decisions about their collective future, uh, not people who, who aren't part of the political community. And so if we start with that baseline, then as a matter of domestic law, we have things like FARA, like campaign finance rules that seek to preserve the integrity, as it were, of, of sort of democratic processes. And the Internet Research Agency indictment I mentioned, right, that's an indictment for violating U.S. law. It's not an indictment for violating international law. But at the international level, we've also figured out, at least since World War II, if not before, that uh, having some rules of the road for how countries interact with each other is the best way to try to prevent war. And so we need to figure out collectively, you know, when is it okay to, for example, try and persuade people in another country to elect a particular political leader uh, that you think might be favorably inclined to, I don't know, establish trade deals with your country or whatever the case may be, versus essentially staying out of it and letting each country go its own way. And so uh, I'm sure your listeners are, are thinking about, again, sort of the democracy promotion efforts of the United States. And it, people tend to draw what I think of as false equivalences, but nevertheless, I think justifiably ask, well, wait a minute, you know, why is democracy promotion okay? And creating fake Facebook accounts that purport to be Americans, not okay. And in my work where I've ended up on this, but again, this is not an internationally accepted rule. But for me, what really makes the difference is, is the element of, of deceit, of deception, because we do live in a communications environment that is international, right? There's no way that we would only ever listen to people from this country in, in our political discourse, nor should we. We should absolutely exchange ideas across borders. But I think it's that element of, of covert influence that really, again, reared its head in 2016 and really shifted the conversation where we took a step back and said, well, wait a minute, you know, is this something that we can't just leave it to domestic law to regulate? Is this something that we as, as you know, countries on the international level really need to get together and, and establish some rules of the road now that, for example, it's so much easier to you know, plant the seeds of a message that goes viral. And that, that's where the technology really makes a difference. Okay, well, I was going to talk about Russian interference in the 2016 election later, but I feel like we have to talk about it at this point right now. We can't talk more about cyber interference without talking about the case that most listeners must have on their mind at this moment. Really, any listener must at least anticipate that we were going to discuss, so let's just get out of the way, the 2016 American election and the strong evidence that we have that the election was either swayed by or at least strongly subject to uh, Russian cyber interference in the ways that you've talked about. Trolls uh, online, um, fake accounts, posting information, posting misinformation. Can you share a description just so we have the most robust sense from somebody who studies this professionally, what exactly happened? And I guess I should ask the question point blank. Did Russia do anything illegal? Well, there definitely were violations of US law. And those are what we're seeing crop up in some of these uh, indictments. Although when we think about criminal indictments, we often then think about you know arresting, trying, and punishing perpetrators. Uh, and most of the folks named in these indictments are you know, in Russia and are not uh, likely to be arrested anytime soon. But I do think they're a great place to start. Again, just going to the Department of Justice's you know, homepage and searching for uh, indictments related to Russian interference. You've 
got the, the time and energy for it, making your way through the various volumes of the, the Mueller report, Bob Mueller's conclusions from his investigation, again, really tried to get to the bottom of, of what happened in 2016. So, so the short answer is yes, absolutely violated U.S. domestic law. Which actions violated international law is a trickier question, because as I mentioned, international law is a consent-based system where countries get together and figure out what the rules of the road are for their mutual interactions. And this is a, a relatively new area where countries on the one hand, the United States included, want to preserve our ability to you know, make statements and perhaps you know, try to encourage folks in Ukraine right, to uh, support the Zelensky regime uh, or maybe want to publicize human rights violations that we think are being committed in China against the Uyghurs and, and don't want that to be viewed as somehow internationally unlawful because you know, it may have an effect of swaying the views of you know, Chinese or, or Ukrainian audiences. At the same time, again, this sort of use of deceptive techniques like the ones that you mentioned are, I think, extremely troubling. And what we're seeing is an alliance, perhaps one of, of convenience, but certainly an alliance between Russia in the first instance, but certainly uh, other countries are in the cyber interference business as well, and predominantly right-wing elements in our own society where they, they reinforce and build upon each other. And so the ways in which I think you've discussed with other podcast guests, social media in particular, but traditional media as well, is really taken on this, this role of driving people apart from each other uh, is something that has, I think, been exacerbated by these foreign financing and information actually uh, coming from, you know, people sitting uh, at desks uh, or in closets in Russia and various other places that we don't have extradition treaties with, uh, as opposed to coming from uh, purely U.S. sources. And so uh, the, the social fabric, I think, as much as the election process is something that I think is is really under strain. And to go back to your, your point about did that you know, sway the election? I think we'll never know. But are we absolutely witnessing a tearing apart of our social fabric that is very much in the interest of the regimes that compete with us for global influence and prestige? Absolutely, we are. I mean, this is a really interesting question for me because I'm interested in is whether cyber interference into democracy is something that is fundamentally new, or is it rather just a kind of digitized version of what countries, including and especially the United States, have been doing for quite some time, which is to move the state of politics in a foreign country in the direction that another state oftentimes the United States, finds economically, politically, or logistically favorable to that first state's best interest. I, I guess here, the question that I'm trying to ask is, what is new or fundamentally different, not just in shape or in scale, but in kind, about cyber interference? Well, so you took the words out of my mouth, because I was going to say that the, the first thing really is scale. And we can have the conversation in this context, as you've had in other contexts, about whether the tremendous difference in scale actually becomes a difference in kind, right? And I do think that the tools made available by modern technology, the fact that everyone essentially has their own personal information stream, whether it's on a phone or some other kind of device, uh, the fact that we are able to establish these communication networks, which again can be extraordinarily fruitful and, and beneficial, but also extremely dangerous by being literally connected with people who have or who espouse ideas uh, that may be tempting to us to believe, but that we end up getting more and more pulled into without the sort of countervailing forces that we might expect in a, in a truly free uh, information environment where you kind of have you know the ideal marketplace of ideas competing with each other. Instead, we kind of all you know shop only in our own aisle and don't have a lot of a lot of competition going on these days. So I do think that the difference in scale and kind of method of delivery of these different kinds of messages and the ease with which, for example, fake accounts can be created. I mean, I'm sure some of your listeners have seen at least a couple episodes of that, that series, The Americans. 
And, you know, it took a lot of time for a couple of Russian operatives to, you know, get American accents and create American identities and move into an American home and conduct, you know, espionage operations on the ground. It's a heck of a lot easier to just find an image somewhere on the internet, create a profile using it and start typing uh, messages. So the the ease uh, with which this can happen and the scale at which it can be distributed, I would venture to say is, is a difference in kind, even though the underlying premise that, that of course, countries are going to try to shape each other's particularly foreign policy, let alone domestic policy, uh, that itself is not new. There's a question that I should just ask point blank here. Maybe I'll give a little bit of background. I've been thinking a lot about Neil Postman's idea of technological determinism, which is the idea that major movements actually have at their core a revolutionary form of technology that mobilizes the social movement forward. Neil Postman and others talk about, for example, the development of the stirrup and how the stirrup created a new means by which people would raise armies, which in turn changed the field of an entire nation toward fiefdoms, right, for example. And so this kind of technological innovation is at the core of major social movements. And I'm wondering here whether technologies that allow us to connect that attempt to democratize information are at the core of ending our democracy. After all, if democracies depend on every single person being equipped with information in order to be able to make decisions about elected leaders and information by way of connection and by way of the fact that information has been democratized now makes manipulated information or information that's based in propaganda or that can so easily be used by bad actors to uh, mobilize people in their direction. Democracy seems particularly vulnerable to me. So here's the question asked point blank. Are we at the end of an age of democracy? I hope not. (laughs) I really hope not. You know, I was... um... Actually, just listening this morning to a different podcast, it was an interview with with Adam Kinzinger, who was asked to opine on, on a similar question, although not necessarily from the, the perspective of technology. Look, I, I think that the idea of technological determinism is fascinating. And one of the things that are always so rich about your conversations, Deb, is the way that you weave in uh, really interesting theories from a variety of different disciplines. I think anything for me that has determinism attached to it is something I instinctively resist because I do like to think that there is an element of of free will and that we still have the capacity to shape the outcomes of our, our own destinies. But it really is a moment of reckoning. It's a moment of reckoning with the, as again, the the ease and the scale with which messages can be distributed that, as you said, perhaps especially in a country with a fairly open information environment, at least in some respects, carries with it vulnerabilities and people's dispositions, you know, all these sorts of things that psychologists have been so adept at identifying, whether it's confirmation bias or you know, now in you know, two, almost three years into a pandemic, searching for easy answers, searching for people to blame. We have these psychological predispositions that I think combined with uh, certain features of our political institutions do make us, you know, again, speaking from the United States, easy targets in a way. And I think uh, there's no doubt that Vladimir Putin exploited that in 2016. I think one of the fascinating questions, again, if we're thinking about free will and kind of what what could or couldn't have made a difference is, as uh, as I'm sure you know, you know, the intelligence community in the lead up to the 2016 election was very much aware of what was going on. And I think their concern was that making public statements about it would delegitimize what they likely expected to be based on polling at the time, a Clinton presidency. And so so there are absolutely decisions by individuals that can that can shape the results of these kind of technological shifts. But there's there's no doubt that, that we have a confluence now of factors uh, that, that really need to be handled very carefully in order to, to sort of figure out the best way forward. I mean, 2020 hindsight, right? But what could the, an Obama administration have done? What would have been an effective way to deal with the knowledge about bad actors interfering, using cyber technologies into the democratic process in the United States? And maybe with an eye of using that 2020 hindsight toward 2020 foresight, what ought a government now that we know about uh 
the potential of cyber interference to do? You know, I think it's so tricky because um, something else that polling shows very clearly is we are dealing with a generation in which there is huge distrust of institutions, right? And that is something that I think is both a almost a precondition for, but also to a large extent, the result of the very developments that we've been talking about. So there's a, a healthy, but perhaps exaggerated skepticism, I think, towards what folks in positions of authority are telling us. You know, look at you know, the hate campaign against uh, Dr. Fauci anytime he says something about the, the course of the pandemic. So, so it's very difficult to know whether statements, you know, official statements would have the desired effect or if they would, as I think, you know, again, just based on public reporting, uh, was apparently a concern at the time, whether they would actually backfire. An interesting count, well, a couple of interesting counterexamples. So one, of course, is, you know, in the most recent election, when President Trump was making comments about how the election perhaps had been interfered with and, and that Joe Biden hadn't legitimately won, you know, the head of his cybersecurity department essentially came out and said there were no anomalies with the voting and with the elections. Uh, he was fired for that, but I think it was really important, again, to have someone out there. There are going to be people who continue to doubt that, but it's really important to have people saying, no, there, there actually was integrity in the election. And so looking forward, I think making sure that we have integrity at that sort of physical layer, right? The voting processes that we talked about at the outset. Another really interesting counterexample, again, not with domestic elections, but, but folks are, of course, following, I think, that the developments between Russia and Ukraine right now. And we heard reported the other day that the United States had learned about this false flag operation uh, that Russia was allegedly beginning to mount, whereby it would have apparently dressed up corpses as Russian soldiers, brought in actors to play mourners, and essentially staged an alleged attack by Ukrainian forces on Russians to be able to distribute then a video of that fake event to stir up domestic support in Russia for an invasion of Ukraine. And it, I'm sure, must have been a, a difficult decision for the Biden administration to come out with that allegation, right? And I think some of the, the spokespeople who announced that intelligence find uh, were actually pushed by the press saying, well, show us the proof and how do you know? Uh, and that becomes difficult because, of course, you don't want to reveal sources and methods. And already just signaling that you're aware of this plan shows that you have some some on the ground intelligence. But I think the, the idea there was precisely to defuse the possibility that Putin would use this manufactured video as a pretext for invading Ukraine. As, as others have pointed out, you know, no doubt he'll find another pretext. But that is perhaps an example of actually getting out ahead of a potential, I would call it a cyber operation, right? I mean, of, of a sort and debunking it before it happens to try to take away its, its potential to actually alter behavior. So looking forward, right, I think it is probably on balance better to be transparent with the public, but I, I don't think it's I don't think it would be realistic to assume that just because a government agency comes out and says, you know, here are the, the following accounts are Russian trolls, don't pay any attention to them, uh, that everyone will all automatically fall in line and, uh, and accept that that's necessarily the case. As you were talking, it occurred to me that there might be another factor that makes cyber interference more challenging for international law or domestic law to really grapple with, which is the idea that, you know, when we talk about older forms of interference, we're generally talking with, I think, some sureness about state actors or the state of another country interfering into a, a democratic process. But in the context of cyber interference, it's not clear to me that we're always talking about one state interfering with another state's democratic process. I can think of at least two examples of where we can see non-state actors fundamentally forming this kind of interference in a way that makes, uh, I think, this process much more difficult for international law to grapple with. I mean, you can think about, you know, for example, the Taliban. Uh, I think about forms of, of cyber terrorism as uh, fundamental to intervening into state processes of, of democratic uh, elections or self-governance. I also have in mind the uh, Bell Pottinger scandal in South Africa. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but in 2016, 2017, just for listeners, a British PR firm was hired by a very wealthy South African family to run propaganda campaigns that would create and foster a national disunity 
essentially setting off racial tensions through a campaign built on Twitter bots, hate-filled websites, and speeches, all pushing a highly toxic narrative, namely that whites in South Africa had seized resources and wealth while they deprived Blacks of education and jobs. Of course, this is leveraging a fairly true story about South Africa into a kind of campaign that would intervene into South Africa's future democratic decisions. This is a British PR firm, not a state campaign attempting to intervene. So I guess, you know, when we talk about cyber interference, are we generally talking about foreign state actors or does cyber interference also involve these cases, non-state actors, rogue lone wolves, right? WikiLeaks, corporations. What's your take? Well, wow, that's that's um, a lot to for everyone to get their minds around. But I, I guess a couple of, of points that, that are really important to raise your anecdote really brings to the fore. So one is, and actually this is what I was just talking to my international law students about yesterday, as it turns out, uh, the question of attribution in cyber is phenomenally fraught. And when we talk about attribution in the cyber context, there's technical attribution. So literally figuring out where the different, whether it's messages or accounts or malicious code, if it's a, a ransomware attack or something, where is that coming from, right? On a technical level, figuring out are there sort of signature features of the code that make me think it's this particular actor. Uh, and as you mentioned, Deb, it could be an act, a, a non-state actor. It could be a state actor. It could be uh, a group of what we call cyber mercenaries being paid by a state. And so there is a whole international law framework that already exists for attributing the conduct of individuals to states. But it's, it's tremendously difficult because, again, on a technical level, it's not like you see somebody holding a gun and you know shooting it at an opposing army, right? Uh, there's a lot of uh, digital forensic work that I'm sure a number of your colleagues at Cal Poly are, are very adept at that I really know nothing about. Um, but there's that technical attribution. Then there's a political attribution question. That's what we were talking a little bit about earlier. You know, to what extent do domestic authorities actually stand up and point a finger and say, hey, you know, this is where this ransomware attack came from. This is where that, you know, troll farm or, or the, these, you know, internet trolls or bots or whatever the case may be originated. And then there's the legal attribution question, right? They don't always get traced back to nation states, although at the moment, my, my understanding is that most of these really major significant operations we're looking at are at a minimum state financed, uh, that the capabilities required, you know, maybe not to do a sort of uh, viral PR campaign, but certainly to you know, attack physical infrastructure or uh, do this kind of systematic, right, you know, multi-pronged uh, election interference effort. That still remains largely state-driven. Uh, but I think, you know, non-state actors traditionally have been the province of domestic law rather than international law. That's certainly been changing somewhat because they are uh, you mentioned a number of, of you know terrorist groups. Uh, one that's now the government of a country again, right? So there there are spaces in international law to accommodate even you know responsibilities of you mentioned corporations. Uh, but those are new developments that are are not unique to cyber, but it's certainly you know certainly we have to think about in the context of cyber as well. And, and I should mention, by the way, when we're talking about disabling some of these networks, the big social media companies, right? Twitter and Facebook for sure some of the other companies that we don't necessarily associate with social media, but we think about Google or Microsoft, I mean, they have massive teams that are really 24-7 trying to play catch up with these groups, right, and take down uh, these, these various bad actors and fake accounts and so on and so forth. But it, it is invariably a catch up game. And so uh, we're all scrambling, I think, to try to figure out how to really take the sting out of all these new tools. There's kind of three branches of people who might mitigate the damage of cyber intervention that you've talked about in the course of this conversation. So I want to kind of just put them out in front center and then maybe ask you to respond to how these things ought to come together, or whose responsibility you think it should primarily be to create the intervention. Um, so we've talked about you know domestic legal systems and the role that domestic legal systems have played or maybe need to play in the context of creating a way to, to mitigate or to stop uh, cyber interference. We've talked about international law and the possibilities of international legal systems to uh, create interventions that would stop or apprehend cyber interference. And then we've talked about social media companies, Twitter, Facebook, the fact that many of the damages done to, uh, to democratic processes happen on those platforms and that they might have a responsibility as well to stopping 
uh, or at least uh, apprehending some of the bad actors um, or some of the bad activities that happen on the platforms. What's your take? Where does responsibility lie? How can or how should these platforms and legal apparatuses work together? Or should they? Should this be the province of law and not the province of private corporations? What's your take? My take is all of the above. Um, it's really, it, it can't be solely the responsibility of, of one group or one set of institutions. But there are invariably tensions among them, right? So if we look at international law, at least traditionally speaking, right, we keep coming back to this issue of state consent. And so there have been various efforts. There's a UN group of governmental experts and various meetings and processes that have sought to establish you know, more explicit rules of the road in cyberspace. And they've come up with some interesting declarations of principles, but they've also uh, run into a lot of brick walls, as you can imagine, because countries do not necessarily have complementary or compatible interests all of the time. Uh, there have been uh, real efforts, uh, maybe by a fourth group, which would be civil society groups, right, both domestically and internationally. There's something called the Oxford process through which some international law principles have been articulated, but again, not in a, in a binding way, in a, in a sort of aspirational way. Uh, there are amazing domestic groups, I think, of Citizen Lab up in Canada that's done so much of the digital forensic work behind a, a lot of the revelations that we've encountered in the press lately. I think domestic governments need to have a very significant role to play. But again, that presupposes, uh, number one, legitimate and effective domestic governments. And number two, you know, again, to use the word somewhat broadly, domestic governments. I mean, the, the other huge issue, of course, with moving uh, so many of our communications online is it gives uh, so much more power to authoritarian governments to surveil people, to block the internet, to prohibit different kinds of speech. And so I, I also do find myself hesitating at the idea that we would put too much power in the hands of government to regulate what goes on on the internet, even setting aside uh, in the United States, First Amendment limitations and, and so on and so forth. I do think a huge amount of both moral and legal responsibility rests with the companies. But again, it's a difficult proposition, certainly to say that we should just leave them to their own devices because they also have uh, mixed incentives. And I know that you read an article that I, I published with my husband, which was uh, an interesting experience to say the least, in which we offer some suggestions about what some social media companies might want to do to sort of move in the direction of greater transparency, less ability to be exploited in a variety of ways. But but really, there's, there's a reason that so many people are thinking and talking about these issues, which is that they really are, I think, some of the most important issues of our generation. Uh, but there are so many competing interests that I think the concern that Ram and I have, and, and I'm sure a lot of observers have, is that we're going to do lots of talk and, and not enough action. And then when there is action, so there's an, an, an act in Congress now moving through called the Earn It Act, and I'm not steeped in all of its details, but a lot of people who follow the content moderation space very closely and have thought a lot about it are very concerned about some of the provisions in that legislation. So some legislation might actually be worse than no legislation in certain instances. But but from my perspective, you know, if there's one message I would want to emphasize as someone who has you know, dabbled in various pieces of this puzzle for the last number of years, it really is that the deceptive practices need to be curtailed, they need to be called out. And you know, if the if that means that the United States is going to, you know, renounce any potentially deceptive practices that we think would be politically advantageous to deploy, so be it. Because I think really at this point, the importance of returning to uh, a world in which, as many have said, we're all entitled to our own opinions, but we're not entitled to our own facts, is one that we're moving farther and farther away from. Russia, I think, helped push us in, in this dangerous direction, but it certainly is not solely responsible. There are very this fertile soil that they found uh, when, when they started with these attempts. And you know, it's really gonna take sort of collective will to get back on track in terms of, again, our own domestic emphasis on you know, credible, reliable information. 
I mean, my personal experience uh, looking at and spending a lot of time thinking about how technology companies work and what incentives they have to do things that are aligned with a certain ethic um, has made me very, very cynical about that. So I've become more and more a proponent of laws, including laws that would require platforms to define themselves, for example, as publishers or think of themselves as publishers and therefore be responsible and accountable for things that are published on their website. And so thinking more and more and more about legal structures, I've gotten really interested in is is one of the things that you talk about, which is the challenge of creating an international structure to either provide an approach to preventing cyber interference, or if one state chooses to interfere with the democratic process of another state, to actually enforce penalties. Now, you and I, you know, both I think spend some time in the international law space and looking at the origins of where we have an international community focused on and able to do international law enforcement. Um, I think you and I both understand that there are some real challenges in getting the international community to work together on most things. And in addition to that, you know, real moments where the international community has failed to enforce laws or beliefs or regulations that it itself has come up with. How should we go about setting up an international legal structure that can provide a means for prevention or enforcement? Are we talking about something that already exists, like the United Nations or the ICC, the International Criminal Court, creating new branches to deal with this? Or are we talking about something that is not yet set up? Do we need a new international governing body specifically dealing with issues of technology that would maybe perhaps deal with cyber interference and along with other issues related to international governance of technological products? What's your take? So I think we need to differentiate, as you do, between intergovernmental organizations, so those are the UNs of the world, uh, and then maybe international NGOs, right? The amnesties or human rights watches or the, the International Committee of the Red Cross, for that matter. I think there are very credible institutions that are not beholden to any single state. They're not created under the laws of a particular state. They have members from many different countries that can play a really important role in you know, defining and articulating norms of behavior. And, and you know, this Oxford process and other things I've mentioned, I think, are are trying to do that. But it's, I think it is naive to hope, unfortunately, that the solution lies at the international level, both because at the end of the day, international institutions and international governmental organizations only have as much coercive and enforcement power as states are willing to give them. And number two, because whether it needed to be this way or not, information operations in particular. So again, if we kind of bracket off, we talked at the very beginning about this under information operations, operations that maybe target election infrastructure, and then operations that maybe target other kinds of critical infrastructure. So if we're just thinking about the information space, it's so deeply politicized, right? Just as if we're talking about distrusted institutions, you know, public health has become uh, shockingly politicized. And I think international institutions are the least effective when they're grappling with deeply politicized issues. They do very well with things like technical standards. So, you know, the fact that we have an internet at all, the fact that we have, you know, IP addresses that can be recognized uh, from, you know, any computer terminal anywhere in the world. I mean, there is, there are international law and institutions operating in the backdrop of all of that, right? Uh, where the deep sea cables can be laid that will help bring signals to different parts of the world. Those kind of technical cooperation where there's a clear common benefit are, are the, the areas in which international law and institutions do their best work. Uh, there's been some proposals for an international institution to do the kind of cyber attribution I mentioned earlier. And while I think that's a great idea in theory, part of the problem is, is precisely that some of these attribution decisions uh, are inherently political to the extent that countries are not going to want to be called out for launching, you know, again, operations uh, in other countries, whether they're information operations or operations ransomware or other kinds of, of activity. So I think that could be difficult. Um, but let's uh, maybe one thought would be to think of an area in which I think an international legal regime has worked well, again, just top of mind, uh, because it's been in the news lately, and that is the international civil aviation regime, right? So we have an international civil aviation organization, ICAO, 
And uh, pursuant to treaties, it regulates civil aviation and is the reason why we can, you know, get on a plane in one country, uh, overfly a few other countries unmolested and land uh, at our destination. And you'll recall that last year, Belarusian officials falsely told the pilot of a Ryanair plane that there was a bomb on board or that they had at least received a threat that there was a bomb on board, forcing the plane to land in Belarus, um, at which point two of the passengers were arrested, one of whom was a prominent Belarusian uh, blogger and and dissident. The international outcry there was really uh, uniform, uh, with the exception, perhaps not surprisingly, of Russia. And although the enforcement aspect is a difficult one, and in fact, the United States just indicted a number of the officials from Belarus who made those false communications, I think the reason that there was such a a sort of unified front in opposition to this was the realization that, you know, our entire system of civil aviation is going to crumble if we can't trust countries to refrain from doing politically expedient things like force planes to land on false pretenses in order to arrest dissidents. You know, if that becomes sort of a one-off, which I hope it will be, I think that shows that the resilience and effectiveness of these international regimes. So in the information space, I think we need to figure out ways to create sort of a, a common understanding of what a global public good would be. And I think that's where the challenge is, because we might all agree that it's economically beneficial for civilian airlines to be able to fly around the world and not worry about being coerced into landing or whatnot. But I don't think there's yet broad agreement, at least among countries, on you know, what kind of information space uh, would be you know, in everyone's best interest, even though you and I sitting here might have a very clear idea of what we think that might look like. We have an election coming up here in 2024. It's an election that could be very important in terms of providing a turning point for this country. Are you worried about the safety of this election and its integrity and the possibility of cyber interference again by the Russians? I mean, I'm always worried, but that's just in my nature, (laughs) right? Our our lawyers are always worried about something. I'm not as worried about foreign interference as I am about the domestic political divides and domestic deployment of disinformation to foster and fuel conflict. Uh, Again, as I mentioned earlier, I think there are a lot of synergies between foreign attempts and domestic attempts, and it's it's certainly hard, and I certainly don't have the tools to kind of parse what's what's foreign and what's domestic uh, in this, uh, but I, and, and I think, you know, we're seeing this kind of transnational phenomenon now, if you look at the trucking protests up in Ottawa, which are are shutting down, you know, the Canadian capital, largely in the name of a sort of, as I understand it, kind of anti-vax, anti-masking discontent, but apparently, at least based on public reporting, you know, organized largely online, financed apparently from the United States to at least a significant extent, and perhaps even intended to be a sort of dress rehearsal for similar protests that might occur here. So we're really, to my mind, not dealing solely with a kind of foreign threat that we can, we can isolate and think about and, and present a common front against. And that's precisely the problem. And that's precisely the, the danger of this kind of threat is, you know, it's not World War II where, you know, America united stands against foreign enemies. I mean, that's obviously always been an oversimplification. But if, if you think about that, foreign threats, for better and often for worse, create at least a, a temporary sense of domestic solidarity. This threat is precisely the opposite. It is eroding whatever domestic solidarity existed, taking advantage of fissures in American society that that certainly have been there and and need to be reckoned with, whether it's along uh, the axes of of race or socioeconomics. But literally and figuratively, Americans are not on the same page anymore. And even if Russia sits back and does nothing in the next two years, I think the trajectory that we're currently on is not one that is heading towards sort of unification in the name of a common purpose, but it it really is factionalism motivated by, you know, and and you can fill in the blanks. So I think it's really important to have these conversations and I'm grateful to you for hosting them. I do think we need uh, clearer international understandings of, of what is and is not acceptable behavior. I think the United States has been trying to articulate some of those. I think it's been using domestic criminal law in the form of these indictments. It's been 
you know, making statements and issuing sanctions, when it identifies cyber operations that are attributable to foreign states. But unless we also better come to terms with how we want to shape our domestic information environment, uh, this international law conversation is going to be very interesting. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be the most important one for figuring out how to how to put our country on a better path towards a more, you know, again, a, a country in which people are you know, forming and acting on different opinions, but at least agreeing on how to identify the facts. I know that in your context as a professor at UC Hastings, you teach a course on a democracy and technology and have been teaching that course ever since you came back from the State Department. What kind of questions do your students ask these days? What kinds of things are they curious about or interested in or concerned about when they come into your class? The thing I love about this class is it's kind of like your podcast, although I don't have, uh, you know, as cool technology and microphones and everything to, to, to set it up, which is I, you know, I bring guests in to talk about a range of, of topics and then students pick their own uh, paper topics that they, they work on. And so I guide them through the, the, the uh, often arduous process of writing an extensive research paper. So we have been grappling with some of the topics that, that you and I have talked about today including social media and you know, content regulation, bad actors on social media. I've had students in the past look at, you know, for example, the role of Facebook in the uh, genocide in Myanmar. I've had students who are very interested in data privacy and looking at different data privacy regimes around the world. Uh, I have students this year, actually, who are very interested in children's privacy issues. Uh, and so uh, a couple of them are going to be writing papers in that area. Uh, we have students who are interested in elections. I have a student this year who is looking at uh, state level initiatives uh, for election security. And I do think that, again, like you, one of the really nice things about being based at an academic institution is the privilege of being able to convene conversations about questions that we have uh, perhaps some expertise in, but even more questions about. And so that has been a forum for me in which to convene those conversations and to think more about these issues. But uh, none of them uh, yield easy solutions. If, if they did, we would have figured them out and implemented them by now. I think we have time for one last question. Are you optimistic about the endurance and the health of democratic processes in an age of cyber interference? I think I have to be, you know, I've got three kiddos. So <laughs> for their sake, I think I have to be optimistic. But back to your point about determinism, I, I do think we can't just sort of sit back and, and let, you know, let events take their course. I think, again, just coming back to domestic politics, because that's, that's what's been on my mind lately. You know, I'm, I'm really interested, as many are, to see the results of the January 6th committee, you know, what it's going to find both about the role of, of social media and technology in you know, helping to coordinate and organize the January 6th insurrection, but also what steps can be taken to avoid that happening in the future. I think, you know, we really need people who are willing to put their, you know, necks out and take a stand when it is harder to do that um, now that, you know, a social media mob can be unleashed on you at any moment uh, for, for saying something that, that rubs somebody the wrong way. So I am optimistic by necessity, but I'm not fatalistic in the sense that unless, you know, people in who have decision-making authority use that decision-making authority to set up stronger guardrails, I, I think we've, we've had a taste of just how ugly things can get. And, and I really hope we've learned our lesson, but it's clear that quite a few members of Congress have not. And so at this point, uh, we're really counting, I think all of us, you know, as cheesy as it may sound, kind of integrity uh, winning out over, you know, greed and hubris, which I think is maybe, as you said, uh, you know, technology provides some new contexts for that to play itself out, but it's, it's an age old problem, right? Predating even some of the most primitive technologies. So really, at the end of the day, what we're, what we're battling is human nature. Thank you so much, Jeanette. It was a fun conversation.